I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thank you. And how has your week been? Oh, rather good, actually. So what's the topic that you've got lined up for us today? Well, the past few months have seen a lot of talk by the Reserve Bank and the government about the need to rein in an overactive housing market. What do you make of all that? Yeah, you're right. There has been a lot of talk by the Reserve Bank and the government, and the market has been very active, there's no question. I mean, you're seeing clearance rates, or you have seen clearance rates in Sydney and Melbourne in the high 60s, 70s, you know, reasonably consistently. And that could well continue for a while. And people have talked about the annual growth at being 11, 12, 13% per annum for the last couple of years. And, you know, things are out of control. But you've got to keep it in perspective because the last couple of years, most homeowners have been paying catch up. I mean, you've got to think back to when the global financial crisis hit in 2008. Prices actually fell. And people didn't move. They they were more concerned about paying when interest rates dropped. They didn't upgrade they, their properties. They just paid off their mortgages. And as I said, the prices fell and they moved sideways for a while. And so if you average out the price movements since 2008 over that six-year period, it actually only works out to about 3.5% per annum. I mean, sure, it's been you know, around 10 or a bit more in the last couple of years, but given that it fell and then moved sideways for a few years, you average the whole lot out over six years, and it's really quite respectable because, as I said, a lot of people have put off moving, even if they had a need to move because they were out, out growing the property, because they just felt uncomfortable with the global financial crisis, would they have continue to have a job? And so, as I said there, when people are confused, they tend to do nothing. And in this case, that involved paying off or paying down their mortgages by increasing or keeping their monthly payments the same, even though the interest rate had dropped and they didn't have to pay as much. They did so to reduce the the balance. Now, once things have started to pick up, they have turned around with a bit of confidence and starting to re-enter the market, and they've been clamouring for more buyers than there are properties, bids the price up. But it's a really modest increase, if you think about it, at only 3.5% over the um, that six-year period. How successful would an intervention by the Reserve Bank be? As far as intervention is concerned, the the Reserve Bank have a couple of options. The soft option is referred to as jawboning. In other words, talking about an overheated market and generally cajoling the the buying public. And it it actually has a a greater impact than than most people realise. And you know, initially started to, as I said, cool things probably better than 
than an interest rate rise. But the simplest way for them is to raise cash rates. And that's certainly not an option given the condition of the economy is still reasonably flat compared to the housing market. And so they're not likely to do that, to increase rates like they did rather abruptly back in 2006-2007, where even a small shift in the rates, which added, say, 100 to $125 to the monthly payments, would have a significant adverse effect right at the moment for people who have bought houses because they are relatively well geared at the moment and or heavily geared and so that given the economy is not as buoyant as everyone would like was probably not the the right way to go and the only reason they would increase interest rates is if inflation started to eke its way up and that may happen when now that we've seen the dollar coming down under 90 closer to 85 cents US dollars, that could have some impact on inflation, but it hasn't really fallen enough yet to to create that impact. And that's generally the, the lag effect as people have to pay more for imports, and it's generally about a six-month lag. So probably about March, April next year, you'll start to see some impact on, on prices. And that may be the time when the when the Reserve Bank needs to you know, seriously think about increasing its uh, its interest rates. But at the moment, I suspect that's not on the agenda and would probably be unwise for them to do it at this very point. Are there other avenues available to help cool investor activity while still allowing first home buyers to enter the market? Yeah, look, I think, as far as investors are concerned, that is is one of the, the issues that both the government and the Reserve Bank need to or, or are certainly talking about. And, I mean, they have the option of slowing things down by increasing the deposit. In other words, instead of allowing people to borrow 85 sometimes even 90%, bring them down so that they've actually got to put in a 25% equity and and only borrow 75%. But I don't really think they want to go there because they only want to stop people speculating in property. And the problem with that is that, yes, you might stop the investor speculator, but it's also going to make it so much harder for first home buyers because they're not the the ones that are, are really driving the market they're legitimately there in the market but investors are the ones that are are causing the the issue and so I mean one of the other things they're talking about is is stress testing borrowers as opposed to further interest rate rises but again that will probably adverse effect adversely affect first home buyers which is really not what the Reserve Bank want. They want to protect them as legitimate purchases of both existing and and new property. And so, I mean, what the the Australian Prudential 
Regulation Authority is talking about is the issue relating to to investors. And, you know, to be fair, the official data would suggest that investors are taking advantage of the tax system with uh, negative gearing. And those that are able to do that are effectively outbidding the first-time home buyers. And you only have to look at investor loan approvals. They're almost 40% of the total loan value of, of approvals for residential property. And that's, I think, the highest it's been for about 10 years. And I think the tax office will tell you that there's about 1.3, I think, million taxpayers reporting losses on their investment property. And about two-thirds of those, as I said, are on investment property. So, And the average losses claimed is around about, I think it's eleven or $12,000. So, and the thing is that it's not, the loss is, is not only claimed against the property or carried forward against the property, Australia is one of the few countries where you can actually, if you've got a, a, a negative cash flow on your property, you can actually offset that against your personal income. And that has a lot of benefits. And plus, there, for some investors, the other thing is that so long as you hold the property for more than 12 months, you can get a 50% rebate on your capital gain. So the idea is that you you have a negative gearing and that is more than compensated for by the capital growth at the, at the point of sale. Now, having said all that, negative gearing politically is a very tricky topic. I mean, it, it, the, the suggestion of that, I think Bob Hawke brought that in and it was two years later or 18 months later reversed because of the the lobbying. I mean, taking that sort of tax break away from effectively mum and dad investors, it's not just the big players. I mean, a lot of small players uh, have that advantage that they want to continue using. So it's, you know, it's a very vexed topic. And so I guess the main option being considered would be to require banks to hold more shareholder capital against the value of the loans that they're advancing to investors. And that would make owner-occupier lending far more profitable and, and therefore attractive to banks because they don't have to withhold or match capital holdings to the value of the of the loans that they advance to investors. And it would hit investors, but it would still free up the money and, as I said, make it more attractive for them to be lending to first home buyers. And that would certainly have an effect of cooling the market without necessarily raising interest rates. And while the main impact would be on immediate sales for new investors it would also have some impact on investors that have already purchased if and when they decide to sell in the in the near future so it would you know the quantum of the increase that they received having bought one or two years ago if they were to sell may not be as great so again it it would have a 
a dampening effect on prices and bring it, the market probably back into equilibrium. And I mean, a clearance rate of about 60% in auction sales is about, is balanced. Anything less than that, it's a buyer's market. Anything over 60% clearance rate is really starting to put pressure on prices. And that's what you've seen where they've been consistently in the late 60s, mid 70% clearances week in, week out. The other day, you mentioned you were noticing a growing number of Gen Y clients. Why is that? And what advice are you giving them? It has been interesting, the number of Gen Y buyers that I've seen. It's probably started about 12, 18 months ago. And I think it's been driven by the fact that most Gen Y couples or even individuals realise that it's going to be very difficult for them to get a, their foot in the door as far as buying their first home. They might be able to buy an apartment, but most of them don't want to do that. They're happy to live temporarily in an apartment, but if they're going to purchase something, they really feel that they want to have a house with a garden. So, and we're going back to the negative gearing to a degree. What what they're finding is that they, they can use the money they have available far more effectively if they were to buy an investment apartment or they're now finding in my case, that for the same money they can buy a small strata office and actually get a, a, a instead of a three and a half percent net return, they're getting you know seven to eight percent net return. That they because they're not living in it, the interest is tax deductible, and if it is negatively geared, they get the benefit in their personal income as well. So they can start to get their equity working for them very attractively and their their view is whereas in the past you would lock in the family home get married maybe have some kids then we've saved up some more money you then go out and start to look at investment property they're turning things on their head and they're saying well look let's let's skip the the family home let's get the investment sorted out so we can secure our financial well-being going forward and then once we have done that, then let's look seriously once we're established at a family home and then we'll buy something that really suits our needs, something we can afford. And particularly in the current market when it's starting to heat up, they might decide to wait until the market turns and that, whether that's four, five, six years away, that would be the time that they'll probably step in. So... It's an interesting twist, and I guess the advice I'm giving them is that, look, focus on, on, on commercial property, not residential. I mean, buying an apartment's fine, and, and, and initially that's what they probably have their, their hearts set on and, and are thinking about because they, they perhaps understand it because they've been leasing apartments for some time. But as I say to them, look, if you can get twice the yield, net yield, and have half the problems, and you have three-year leases instead of six or 12-month leases, and the tenant pays the outgoings, I mean, you really don't have to think too hard about it. And you don't want to be spending your time 
worrying about finding tenants and management issues and so forth. With a commercial property, you tend not to have those sort of day-to-day problems to deal with. You want to focus on your job, earning the money so that you can plough it into another investment property. Is this After you've bought this one, bedded it down and it grows in value, you can use a bit of the equity there along with more money that you've saved because of the tax deductions and you get far better depreciation, even if it's neutrally geared to the depreciation with office property or commercial property is far greater than residential. So you can still have, from a tax point of view, a negative cash flow, even though it's cash flow positive as far as the property is concerned. So it's a forced form of savings, and they're starting to realise that this is a far more certainly tax-effective way of doing it, and they just feel that they've now get their equity working for them and see the results pretty much straight away. What impact, if any, is all this likely to have upon the commercial sector? Well, as far as impact's concerned, it's certainly a positive because anyone who is considering buying a small strata office now finds that they have an additional competitor in the market. Sure, you've got your traditional residential buyer, but here we have someone that is coming into the market that wasn't there before and is, when I say aggressively, actively is probably better, seeking to get their hands on something that can start to get their equity working. So whether you're buying yourself a property now or already hold a property, it augurs well because, as I said, you have another layer of buyers brought in that are buying for a quite different reason. Yes, they want to have buy an investment, but they just suddenly the blinds lifted and they can see that they can actually buy real estate, even if it's not the family home they would have traditionally sought. So, and I think we spoke a couple of podcasts ago about the pressure in the CBD markets and so forth, which doesn't, for the, I mean, that's big money, I understand that, but the ripple effect that that flows from that has everyone with the overseas money coming in and particularly with the dollar falling, our property's cheaper, it flows out from the CBD into the suburbs. So you've got it coming from the top and you've got the Gen Y coming from the bottom. It all helps to put pricing pressure and therefore uh, potential growth into the suburban office market or the smaller commercial, if you like, uh, properties, both from above and below, and helps drive your growth going forward over the next four or five years. I imagine all this intervention talk could be rather confusing for most people. Well, that's probably because this sort of thing only happens once, maybe twice in anyone's lifetime. And and so there's no precedent nor past experience to allow you to gain any real perspective. Anyway, I think it's all been rather helpful for you to shed some light on it. So thank you for that. Well, I just hope it's been helpful.